This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, everyone, and welcome back, or welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas since 1993, and have been seeing patients since then as well. I started this podcast about three years ago because I wanted to extend the walls of my practice. For those of you who may already be interested in psychological topics, maybe even be in therapy, but were interested in what another therapist would have to say. To those of you who have just been diagnosed with depression or anxiety or some kind of mental disorder, or you're having relationship problems that you just can't quite seem to work around. And then there's a third group, those of you who would be curious enough to listen to a mental health professional, but you might never darken the door of one. I've been so glad to see and delighted to see some of your emails to me or some of your comments that... You've either taken my work into your therapist or you're someone in that third group and you've decided since listening that maybe therapy would be a good idea. I'm a therapist because I got good therapy and I was so intrigued by the process, I wanted to learn it myself. I want to thank all of you who've left reviews and ratings on iTunes, especially or Apple Podcasts, as I've been told we're now supposed to call it. One listener says, I've only listened to one episode and already have learned some ways to communicate better. Another one, and I love this. As a therapist myself, I absolutely love listening. Your show has helped me both personally and professionally. I take notes and bring your tips and tricks to my groups. Several of my clients now follow your podcast. Thank you for your words. Another listener says, this podcast is of great quality. Thank you. I appreciate that. And allows me to have a more critical outlook of my own struggles, as well as my weekly therapy meetings. Sometimes I just listen for relaxation. Sometimes self-work is an invaluable tool for broadening my perspective. Thank you so much for those reviews. They give me the specific information I need to mold this podcast into what you need it to be. So feel free to email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com and keep those ratings and reviews coming in. They're my best advertisement for self-work. Today, I'm going to respond to another email from a listener. I have to be careful on this one because it's about medication. And I'm a psychologist. I have a PhD, not an MD. I did not go to medical school. So I'll talk about meds in general, maybe things I talk to my own patients about. But I don't have the licensure to recommend or suggest medications to anyone. Here's her actual question. I wanted to suggest a show topic, which is an overview of medications for anxiety and depression. I realize that since you're not a psychiatrist, you may be limited in what you can share publicly, but I think any insight from you would be really valuable. As someone who's been in and out of therapy for years and generally interested in mental health, I still feel a bit of a stumbling block if I'm considering medication and have been looking for reliable guidance and understanding more about this option. And then she lists four questions that are specific questions about meds. How do you know when to consider using medication? What can you expect to change when you start medication? What are the different kinds? And how do you know how long to stay on medication? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. 
our listener email is from, I guess another listener email, is from someone who feels like she's lost an important part of herself as she has grown up and maybe away from some of her passions that she had when she was young due to a very serious struggle with depression. And she's shaming herself for that severely. So the listener email is kind of about how you may have lost your way and you feel like you've abandoned some of your interests and passions because you've been dealing with depression or anxiety or just simply life stress. So I hope you'll stay with me as we venture into the world of a psychologist's view of medications. Today, we're going to focus on the role of medications in psychological treatment. As I said in the intro, I'm not here to recommend any certain meds, but I'll give you my general impressions about their use. Just to let you know, I myself have been on what are termed psychotropic medications twice in my life, and those were for depression. Once in my 20s, where I was prescribed Elevil, which is an antidepressant that's not really used much now, and during menopause, I took Lexapro quite successfully. As regular listeners know, I have performance anxiety, so I carry around also a medication that's actually a blood pressure med, but they discovered that this particular beta blocker, which is what it's called, has a significant anti-anxiety component. It blocks adrenaline. So I use that from time to time much less than I used to. I also want to say that I believe strongly in other kinds of approaches to both depression, anxiety, or whatever else is going on, especially regular aerobic exercise and meditation. And of course, therapy. I don't know much about nutritional supplements, but right now I have a course downloaded on my laptop where I hope to learn more. There's lots of information there that I really want to pass on to my patients. So I'll go through the listeners' questions one by one, at least the ones I feel like I can answer. Here's the first. How do you know when to consider using medication, especially when you're already in psychotherapy and or doing other things for mental health, like meditation or yoga? I think this is a great question. I'm going to quote an internationally known expert on depression for this answer, a man that I actually respect immensely. His name is Dr. Michael Yapko, Y-A-P-K-O, and he's a psychologist. Now I'm quoting. For some people, medication has a therapeutic benefit, even though no one really knows why. Medications do help some people. For many people, the drug, or maybe it's just the expectation of the drug, gives them a boost, a sense of being able to overcome their depression. They may start to feel better, and then start doing things they need to do to get better. If the drug has a mechanism for actually changing depression, which is certainly possible, no one currently knows what that mechanism is. The idea of depression being caused by a shortage of the neurotransmitter serotonin was a hypothesis touted as fact, and that hypothesis has now been all but disproven. You've heard the term, oh, depression is a chemical imbalance. That's what he's trying to say is not true. So back to his quote. Calling depression a disease or medical illness sold literally billions of dollars in drugs, but did not shed much light on the actual causes of depression or what is most effective in drug treatment. Antidepressants, as a sole form of treatment, had the highest rate of relapse of any form of treatment. So just taking a drug is not much of a treatment plan. He goes on to talk about how the drug industry has actually lied about the safety of drugs, etc. 
But this is his major point. Even for those who view drug treatments favorably, they would still have to acknowledge that no drug can identify your personal vulnerabilities, teach you better problem-solving skills, coping skills, or relationship skills, nor can they help you build a support network or help with the many things that can make a huge positive difference beyond the drug's effect. A so-called combined therapy of drugs and psychotherapy is generally recommended, but too few people receive it. So that's what Dr. Yabko had to say. Here are my two cents. First of all, I can't stand the most recent Rigzulti commercial. Basically, it shows a woman who's carrying around a sad mask. She's already had one medication for depression. So what Rigzulti suggests? Try Rigzulti. Add it to the medication she's already on, quote-unquote, so that I don't lose what I've gained or something like that. I understand that it's commercial for a drug, but I agree with Dr. Yapko that nowhere is there a suggestion, however slight, that therapy or exercise could be an option before adding another drug. I don't think that's a good message to give people. This is what I tell my own patients. If they come in and don't want to try meds, fine. But if they are still sitting across from me six to eight weeks later, and they've done what I've recommended in therapy, based on my own experience, and they're still not improving, then they need to talk with a doctor about medications. Or perhaps we're not a good fit, and maybe they need a referral from me. And I also suggest a doc who looks at things a little more holistically, looking at hormonal issues or supplements or a light box, anything that's not necessarily tied in with medication. But I have seen medications do a lot of good, and we'll talk more specifically about that in just a minute. Again, the interesting thing that I think Dr. Yapko points out is that we still don't really know what causes depression, what kind of changes in the brain actually occur. And so whatever you think or whatever you've heard, the most recent research certainly does not back up any particular one causation. That's important to know. Her second question was this, what can you expect to change when you start medication, both in the short term and long term? Here's my answer. Of course, this varies greatly with what the medication is, but let's take an SSRI, which is the acronym for Synthetic Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. This is what I see in patients where SSRIs or their close cousin SNRIs, which have to do with norepinephrine or noradrenaline rather than serotonin, SSRIs are drugs like Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft. Let me give you the three things that I see most commonly in people when they have a positive outcome from their medications. First, what I see in patients, it's just like opening a window in a musty room. Your thinking becomes more fresh. You're not in a rut in your mind. You can stop yourself before automatically having the same reaction you've had that's been troubling in the past. It's as if you have a second or two to check in with yourself. Do I really want to say this or do this or feel this? Second, your sleep will be improved. You may have very colorful dreams, however, and this is good for some, but a little frightening for others. And three, it's as if you've installed a trampoline at the bottom of your psyche. Now, that's not an analogy I learned in graduate school, I can assure you of that. But basically, if and when you get down, if you fall, then the trampoline will help you have more ability to recover. You'll bounce back. You'll get back to normal a little faster and stay really down a shorter period of time. So those are the three things I see. 
How you use that fresh energy is up to you. And that's the short-term result. Now, that can also take clinically around three to four weeks to emerge that you can feel that fresh energy or your sleep is a little bit better. Often, however, whether it's placebo or not, I actually experienced this myself that it did not take that long for me to begin to feel the effects of the meds. The long-term effects, I think actually a psychiatrist should tell you that. Usually, if they're effective, most psychiatrists would say you need to stay on the meds from six months to a year. But it depends on many things. Obviously, if you're having bad side effects, you need to either consider another medication or another treatment modality. And remember, you're trying to establish some kind of new neurological norm, and that can take time. Now, that was just for mild to moderate or even severe depression. Treatment of anxiety and bipolar disorder and eating disorders and sleep disorders and psychotic disorders, that's way too much for one podcast, and they're all different as far as meds are concerned. Basically, however, with anxiety, you want to talk with your medical provider about whether you need anxiety meds in your system regularly or if you can use them, what's called PRN, or as needed. That depends on the kind of anxiety you have and what your goals are. Bipolar disorder medication is usually recommended as meds you take regularly, but there are many ways around the barn there, and docs have their own methods they believe in and have proven helpful to their patients. So I know that's a fairly general overview, but maybe it's helpful. Her third question, what are the different kinds of meds, SSRIs versus benzodiazepines and maybe others I'm not aware of, and what are each most appropriate for? Now, this is the question where I'm on shaky ground. That's really something to talk with a medical doctor about. And here's one of the major reasons why. You may have other medical conditions that are important to consider, and you don't want the med that you take to interfere with other medications or somehow worsen or complicate a condition that you already have. That's simply nowhere in a psychologist's training, unless they take the special training that's available in certain areas. I want to say here, and I want to stress it, I try to always recommend to my patients that if they have not had a medical checkup in a while, that they need at least basic blood work done. What can look psychological like anxiety, can have an underlying medical causation like an endocrine problem or an actual neurologic disorder. I always want to know that I'm not diagnosing something as merely psychological. And of course, that doesn't discount the emotional cognitive issues in depression or anxiety. Medical and mental providers should work together in an ideal circumstance because that's what's best for you. Certainly, doctors are becoming a lot more cautious about medications and not only opioids. Benzodiazepines, which can be very highly physiologically addictive, those are Xanax, Valium, Ativan, Clonopin, those are the major ones, are hugely effective with severe anxiety, but can be extremely tough to get off of when used too long. Now, I admit a bias here. My mother became addicted to prescription meds, and they ruined her life, or at least the last 15 years of it. So I'm very cautious about them, or any kind of overly sedative meds. I want to be honest with you and admit my bias there, because many of you may be on benzodiazepines. I just need you to talk to your medical doctor about their use and any concerns you may have about it. Here's your last question. How do you know how long to stay on medication, or what are signs that you might want to try going off of it? I'll mention again that most psychiatrists will tell you six months to a year. I've had patients forget to take their meds regularly, and they cannot be effective that way. In fact, that kind of use can cause more havoc than help. 
And again, from a clinical viewpoint, not a medical one, if you can point to changes you've made in your own behavior, if you reach some of your therapy goals, if you realize that your relationships are better, you've built a better support network, that you're focused at work and it's going well, if you're sleeping well, if you've made changes in your behavior and thinking, those changes are likely to be self-motivating and won't go away if you stop your meds. That doesn't mean, especially if you experience chronic depression or chronic anxiety, that those issues will never return. But you can have some confidence in weaning yourself off of them with medical advice. Don't simply quit. That's medically dangerous. Both times I have gotten off my antidepressants, I'd made changes in my life, especially the second time. I was way overcommitted, and I'd backed off of those substantially. Most of my menopause was over, and my hormones were leveling off with the help of some estrogen patches. I was exercising a lot more, and I felt as if the boat that had been lurching along was now sailing much more smoothly. I experienced a mild depression, very, very mild, more like a down mood for a few days after I completely got off, and that's pretty normal. And it's also hard to not be a little bit hypervigilant if you've had a positive experience with a medication. So my advice, just generally, educate yourself about whatever meds any doctor recommends for you. Know the side effects that are potentially there. There's one especially dangerous one called serotonin syndrome. You need to go to the hospital if you have that. And I'll include a link on serotonin syndrome. But when you look at the list of side effects, don't be so frightened that you talk yourself out of trying. But remember, most importantly, what Dr. Yapko would say and what I back up is you still have to do the work. You still have to make the changes in your life where your life will be more fulfilling and more productive. Here's our listener email for today. I've struggled my whole life with depression, but was only diagnosed three years ago. Ten years ago, when I was 24, I realized I wanted to make music, not just as a profession, but as a necessary creative endeavor. But I hit a wall and have never been able to overcome that wall. Within all those years of struggle, I feared that I would wake up one day and realize I'd let my dreams go and that a part of me would die. I'm now in my late 30s, and I know that's not old. But I just can't get over the inner voice that tells me it's too late to do music. I don't even necessarily want to reach any particular goal. I just want to make music. But I can barely get in 10 minutes of practice every day. I let days go by without practice, feeling fine, ignoring the anxiety of ignoring my dreams. And then every few days or weeks, I'm struck by the harrowing feeling that I'm failing myself and failing my dreams. I fear that if this goes on, I will give up the special part of me that sees so much beauty in the world. I do have an excellent therapist and have many management tools that I use, not medication, which help me function and be happy quite often. But without music, with the suppression of this very important side of myself, I never truly manage to get by. It feels like it's too late, I'm too old, and an essential part of me is dying. My rational mind says, how can that be true? How can such an absolute statement be true? But every time I hear someone else sing or plan to do some singing practice of my own, those thoughts surface again. And then she says, I imagine it is very common for newly diagnosed people with depression to get past the feeling of time lost because of the illness. So this is my response to her. 
Hello, I don't know if you know this, but I made my living as a professional singer in my 20s. Not much of a living, mind you, but I supported myself as a musician because it was, for quite a long time, a major passion of mine. In fact, for many years, even after I stopped doing it professionally. It does sound as if you're beginning to realize that your depression has been part of this off-and-on focus on your own music. But I still hear lots of shame. And I've learned that shame doesn't do anything except promote more behavior that you find shameful. We think if we shame ourselves for something, we'll do the right thing or the thing we wish we could, but it's quite the opposite. I say this to her because what I can hear in her email is she's constantly comparing herself to others or thinking about what she didn't do last week or yesterday or last month, rather than focusing on the five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes or hour she has in front of her right now. So she's carrying around shame, which is paralyzing to her. You put that in with having to struggle with depression, then that can be really, really tough. So now I'll continue with my answer. Try to confront your shame. For now, read Brene Brown's work, or I have several podcasts on shame, and then focus on today. How could you interact with your musical self today that would feel good to you? You're focusing on the past, not the present, and worrying about how you feel in the future. Both are paralyzing. It's only today that you have control over. I'll share with you in my own journey. People often ask me, do I miss being a musician? But even though I've left the profession, I still think of myself as a musician. There's music in every podcast I record. You being a musician and a creator is with you always. This certainly isn't the first time it's come up with patients for me to hear them say, I always wanted to do this or that with my life, and now I'm 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever, and I feel like I can't do it. And what I say to them often is you might not be able to do that thing that you had fantasies about, but you still have those potentialities inside of you. You just may have to morph them a bit into something that's possible, whatever your mental health situation, whatever your financial situation, whatever your age, whether you're a parent or not a parent, all of that, of course, is important. That does not mean that you can't find a way to express that very, very important part of yourself. Thank you so much for listening to Self Work Today. Again, I said this in the intro, but you can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com, and that's confidential. I'm getting more and more emails, and sometimes I struggle a little bit to answer them, but I'm doing the best I can, so be patient, and I will get back with you. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, that's creative, and you can go there and subscribe, and you'll receive a weekly blog post as well as this podcast, and that's all, I promise. Those of you who've listened a while know that I really don't sell anything. I have one sponsor, and that's audible.com. And from time to time, I will suggest that you go to audible.com and accept their one-month membership, and they will give you a free book. I think that's a pretty good deal. But all in all, I'm not selling you anything. Now, the exception to that <laughs> is I do have a new book coming out called Perfectly Hidden Depression, and it is available for pre-sale. This is where my passion has been, talk about passion, for the last five or six years. And it's available for pre-order at PerfectlyHiddenDepression.com. The reason why I'm bringing it up is that the more we pre-sell, 
the more the publisher will go, hey, how many of these do we actually want to print? So I want this book to get in the hands of the people who need to read it, and you can help me do that if you are interested in the book at all. Come join me over on Instagram at, again, instagram.com slash Rutherford, And I have a new Facebook group. Well, not too new. It's about a year old. We have 900 members from all over the world with all kinds of different issues, but we're really there to give each other support. So that's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. I'd love to have you there. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dr. Margaret. Take very good care. This has been self work